hear the word of the Lord. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And therefore... Having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. I want to start by this. Are you a dog person or are you a cat person? If you can say both, oh, look at you, you're right in the middle, yeah, yeah. you know, both, and hey, you know what, I, you know, it's probably not good to necessarily pick sides, or, you know, I know people who hate cats, and people who hate dogs, and people who love both, and, and those who don't care at all, but I might change your mind after I share this with you, here we go. First off, it's amazing the jobs that people have in this world, the things that people get paid to do. Like the individuals who are animal behaviorists, who study animals and their behavior. And one of the things that they've done in studying animals' behavior is, is this. They've discovered that cats never forgive. <laughs> you might say, I, I get it. You might say, how do they figure this out? Well, let me just read you. Just, Scientists have observed conciliatory, conciliatory behavior in many different animal species. The bulk of the research has been on primates like, like uh, mountain gorillas and chimps, baboons, who often follow confrontations with friendly behavior like embracing or kissing. Scientists have observed similar behavior in non-primates like goats, hyenas, and even dogs. The only species that has so far failed to show outward signs of reconciliation are domestic cats. First off, who studies these things? And who thinks to study these things? But I think about that and I'm like, so are you telling me it's embedded in a cat's nature to just simply not forgive? And if you look at some of the studies that they have done and the tests that they have put cats through, and some of you are gonna be like, no, you know, if you read it, you know, it's like when a cat does something, squirting the cat in the face, and, and I see there, I got somebody with an aww, right? And, and, and watching the cat's reactions after these tests, it's a fascinating thing. And so they've asked, is it just in a cat's nature to not be forgiving? And I thought about that because I wonder, based upon today's text, is it in, 
in our nature to be unforgiving. We say that cats are the only animals that don't forgive, but what about us? Are we unforgiving people? I want you to look at the text this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. Let me read our two verses that we're looking at today. These, these two verses are, are closing out this section of Ephesians that we've been looking at where God has come in his word and says, if you are new creations in Jesus Christ, if you've been saved and redeemed, then a work has come over you. A work has come over you that, that your nature is changed. You're not who you once were. And you should be putting on display certain characteristics as those who are new in Jesus. So we speak the truth and we don't deceive. We have feelings and emotions, but we are not driven or act out of them. We are a generous people and then last week we saw that we use our speech to build up and not to tear down. But then look at what he says in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all what? Malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. God has been showing us in this section of his word that Jesus's impact on your life is not just to save you from hell and to restore you to God. It is to literally make you a new creation, to transform who you once were into who you now are. And today is this last section where Paul says, you will see evidence in your life of a change in this specific area, and that change is in this. How do you respond when people wrong you? These two verses are Paul addressing the response of those who are in Christ to when people have wronged them. How do we respond? Just think about this. When does someone usually get angry with someone else? When do you typically slander someone else? When do you tell a child to be kind to someone else? Why would you need to forgive someone else? What we see in these verses is Paul coming and saying, in the context of when someone wrongs you, there's one way that you used to respond, but now there's a new way because of Jesus Christ as to how you respond. God's word is coming and it's making us aware of how drastically our nature has changed. If I could say it in somewhat of a silly way, we are not cats according to the word of God. Something has drastically changed within us, especially in how we handle those who have wronged us. And what he says is instead of becoming a people who respond to the wrongs done to us and responding with evil in return. There's this wholesale change in us and when someone wrongs us at the heart of it, we're a people that forgive. But this is one of those passages that if we're gonna understand it, we actually have to go back to what Jesus first said about this topic. I want us to listen to him and when we hear what he has to say about these things, it makes sense why Paul says what he says here. So I want you now to turn to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. The context of Matthew 18 is that while Jesus is here on earth, he's talking with his disciples, and they address this issue of what happens when 
somebody has wronged us or sinned against us, the question is raised to Jesus. And Jesus says, if somebody sinned against you, you need to go to them. The first part of Matthew 18, he says, you need to point their fault out to them. You need to address the sin that was done. And Jesus gives us means for how we're supposed to, to ultimately do that. But when you come down to verse 21, after Jesus has laid out how you are to go to someone who sinned against you, verse 21, it says this, then Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So I get if someone sins against me, I should go to them and I, and I should point out their sin and that, and that they should ultimately seek my forgiveness. But how often am I supposed to forgive? And he asks this, as many as what? Seven times? I love Peter so much. He, he, he's unlike me. He's the one of the disciples who's willing to raise the hand and ask the question that everyone else is thinking. And so he says, are you telling me that if somebody sins against me, I'm supposed to go to them and, and you know, confront the sin and, and try and be reconciled in that way. But what if the person sins against me in the same way over and over and over again? How many times do I have to, what? Forgive. Jesus hears him, and Peter says, is it supposed to be seven times? Now, do you know why he says seven times? Did he just pick a number out of the sky? No, because some of the rabbis at that time taught that, you know what, if somebody sinned against you, it, after the seventh time, you don't have to forgive. That you've, you've reached the max, they don't deserve the forgiveness. But look at what Jesus says. Jesus takes this Jewish tradition and he says, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. It, depending upon your translation, it could be 70 times seven to give you a translation of what Jesus is actually saying here, because seven is the number of completion, he's saying, Peter, the answer to your question, how many times you forgive somebody who sins against you is that you never stop forgiving the person who keeps coming to you seeking forgiveness. You never stop doing it. Even if it's 490 times for the same sin, you always extend forgiveness Jesus is saying to them and he's saying to us, there is never a time when you withhold forgiveness from those who have sinned against you. Let's just let that seek in for a second. That's not David Wojnicki saying it, right? That's Jesus coming and saying that. There's never a time when you withhold forgiveness from someone who has sinned against you. Now, as I look out here and I think about our lives and the experiences that we've had. Some of us have been greatly wronged. People have hurt us. These words of Jesus, they can be a little bit shocking. They can be a bit hard to digest, and Jesus knows it. Jesus knows that from this very statement, there's gonna be a, what about, but what about, and there's this one time when, and so what does Jesus do? Because he's the perfect Savior and Lord, the perfect teacher, he tells them a story. And here's the story that he tells them to help them and to help us digest this teaching. Are you ready? Here it is. Jesus said, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Most scholars would say that would be the equivalent of like $3 trillion today. And since he could not pay, 
His master, this king, ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees and implored him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Oh, really? You're going to come up with $3 trillion? And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, about a hundred days' worth of wages. And seizing him, began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, just as the previous servant had done. Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He, though, refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Our text this morning in Ephesians picks up this topic of how do we deal with those who have wronged us. God says that our natures are so transformed by Jesus that we become a people who when those have wronged us, we forgive, we're, we're kind, we, we are tender-hearted even, the text says. And it begs the question, how is this, is this all possible? What does it look like to actually be these kinds of, of people? And when you read the story of Jesus that he tells here, he helps us truly begin to understand what forgiveness is, the very nature of forgiveness, and in this story shows us how it is that we're actually able to forgive. But to get there, we have to start with this. When you look at the story, we're told that the king's servant owed him three trillion dollars. We don't know why. We don't know how he got into that grade of debt with the king. It's a story. It's, it's supposed to just show you the magnitude of this person's debt. And, and so why does Jesus use a story about a servant who owed a king a lot of money? Because of this. When someone sins against you or wrongs you, a debt is created. You experience loss. If we're going to understand why we're people that forgive when someone wrongs us, the first thing we have to understand is what happens when someone wrongs us. And Jesus uses this story to say, do you know what happens when someone sins against you? What's actually taking place? A debt is created, Jesus says. You experience loss. The king in this story was someone who was owed money by this servant, and Jesus is trying to illustrate that that when someone sins against you, it's like the servant who owed this king money. And when I say that a debt is created, I don't want us to be just thinking monetary debt. When someone sins against you, when someone wrongs you, the loss that we experience takes many forms, right? 
When someone has hurt you because of the sin against you, it could be a loss of reputation, it could be a loss of innocence, it could be the loss of opportunity, it could be the loss of time, the loss of a relationship. You lose something. I lose something. It's real. It's not always a monetary debt that's created. Sometimes it's even a physical loss. Would you, would you say that you felt this? When someone has wronged you, sinned against you, that there's a loss in your life that takes shape in so many different ways. And so Jesus says, I want you to know, yeah, that's what happens. Just like this king, he lost something. You lose something. As the victim, as the offended party, you are owed something from the person who has wronged you. The offender owes you. They're liable for the loss that you have suffered. Did you know that? That's what's actually happening. The question is, how are we going to handle the debt that someone owes us? How will you handle the loss someone else created? Now, when a debt is owed to you or to me because of what someone has done, one way of handling it is the way that the king handles it at the start of the story. You make the person pay back their debt. But how do you make somebody pay back your emotional loss, the loss of your reputation, the loss of an opportunity, the loss of a, of a relationship? One way to handle a debt is to make the person pay for what they did. There's, there's two ways of handling a debt. One way is to make the person pay for, for what they did. And, and this is, I think, the way that's most common for, for all of us. In fact, it's the way that's alluded to in our text in Ephesians this morning. I, I think of the story of this man who was driving in Boulder, Colorado. His name was Dave. It was not me. It's a different, different Dave. And Dave works as, a, as an umpire on the side. And he was driving in Boulder, Colorado, and he was going through this one section of, of town, and it was snowing, and a police officer pulled him over for going too fast. And Dave tried to talk the police officer out of giving him a ticket for, for going beyond the speed limit. And the police officer politely told him, well, if you have a problem with this ticket, you can just go to court and try and fight it there. Interesting thing happened the next summer was the first game of the Summer Softball League, and Dave was the umpire. And the first person who came to bat that summer was none other than the police officer. And he got up to the plate and he recognized Dave, and he said, hey, how did things turn out with, uh, with the ticket? Did, did you go to court? And the, Dave looked back at him and he said, well, let me tell you this, you better swing at every pitch. <laughs> <coughs> What was Dave doing there to the officer? He felt he was wrong, so he was making the officer pay. Church, there are ways of dealing with a person who has wronged us. There are ways of dealing with a person who has wronged us. In my little illustration there, Dave was going to make that police officer pay. And so you can make the person pay for what they did. You can make the person pay for what they did. How do we do this? How do we make people pay for what they did? Have you ever made people pay for what they did? Well, look back at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. 
He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Church family, these are the ways that we make people pay. Are they not? In our, in our responses in the flesh, this is the way that the world says you make people pay. You caused me loss, so what am I going to do? Look at bitterness. We dwell on their wrong and hate the person in our hearts. Anybody ever done that? You wronged me, and when I look at your face, all I can think of is that wrong. And, and you know what I'm going to make you pay? I'm just going to hold that in. Because if I can keep that debt that you owe me, then it means that I don't have to show you kindness. And so bitterness, wrath, we inflict emotional pain with our words. Anger, we inflict emotional pain with our words. You wronged me, you caused me emotional loss, you caused me physical loss, whatever it is, and so we feel justified. How do we make people pay when they rob us of emotions, when they rob us of relationships, when they rob us? We attack. That's what Paul's saying here. These are all ways in which we make people pay. We clamor, we scream and shout at them. That word clamor, literally, in the Greek, it's, it's that idea of, of getting pots and pans. And, and we, clamor is talking about we want to disturb the other person's life. You messed with my life, I'm going to turn yours upside down. I'm going to mess with your life. You made me uncomfortable, let's see how you feel when I make you uncomfortable. Slander. We cut them down, we gossip about them. When we feel like somebody's wronged us, when someone has genuinely wronged us, tell me, church, this isn't the way that we function. This is the way that we deal with the loss that somebody's made us experience. Malice, we secretly root for and or actually plot evil against the person. That's what that definition for malice is. I don't wanna do show of hands here, but have you ever responded to somebody who sinned against you in any one of these ways? We look to make people pay. When you understand what is relationally taking place when a person wrongs you, you understand what verse 31 is all about and what Paul is addressing. How do you handle someone who has wronged you? Look, when someone wrongs you, a debt is created, but is that the only way to handle a debt? Is that the only way to seek repayment is to respond in these ways? to demand repayment. Now listen, what I'm talking about here is this. If somebody has robbed you of actual physical money and things like that, it's not to say there's not consequences for sin. It's not that there shouldn't be punishment. Are you tracking with me on this? All right, are, you just, are we clear on that? Like there is in our world systems of justice to deal with things, but what Jesus is getting at is at truly at our heart. Are you a person who is predisposed to being an unforgiving person? Are you somebody who has to see people pay? There's a really tragic story. It was a number of years ago. In 1982, a man by the name of Kevin Tunnel was drinking and he was driving. And tragically, in his altered state, he struck and he killed an 18-year-old girl. And she died. He was made to pay for what he did. He received time in prison for that. But it was also decided that the family should receive compensation for the death of the daughter. 
$1.3 million is what they had been decided. But the family, they did something interesting. They said, we don't want the $1.3 million. Instead, they asked the judge and they settled for $936. You might say, why $936? Because what they asked the judge is that for the next 18 years, every single week for the next 18 years, on Friday, they wanted to receive $1 from Kevin Tunnel for what he did. Because they said, we want to get that $1 from him for the next 18 years so that every Friday he's reminded of what he did to our daughter. It was a tragic loss. But does that communicate somebody who is looking to make someone pay for what they did? So we can take payment from people, we can make them pay or go back to the story. Go back to the story. Look at verse 26. So the servant, it says, when confronted by the king for the three trillion dollar debt that he owed, implored him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you what? Everything. And what does the king do, my friends? He does something shocking. Rather than throwing the servant in prison and his wife and his children, the king releases the servant from having to pay back anything. You see, what Jesus does with his story is he says there's another way of handling the debt. There's another way of dealing with your loss because of the wrongs that someone has done. And what he says here is that you can forgive. You can release the person from their debt and responsibility to suffer punishment or penalty for what they have done. This is what forgiveness is. This is what this story is illustrating. There's two ways of handling it. Make the person pay for what they did or release them. Forgive them. Don't continue to seek punishment and don't continue to seek payment. This is what is meant by forgiveness. But there's something even more profound to me about this. There's something that we sometimes miss in this story and in this concept of forgiveness that we see throughout the Bible. Church, when the king forgave that servant the $3 trillion that he was owed, who bore the cost? Who felt the weight of the loss? The king did. Just because he forgave doesn't mean there still wasn't loss that existed. He was still out all that money. And this is the one thing we often forget about forgiveness. Forgiveness, when you forgive, it is a form of voluntary suffering. If we think that to release someone isn't going to cost the offended party, then, then we're, we're playing around in a fantasy land. The truth is that when you forgive, you assume as the victim, as the offended party, the loss, you assume and take upon yourself and say, now I have to deal with that. Now I have to process through the loss. Listen, when forgiveness is extended, the offender, they don't carry really any weight. I mean, if we're being honest with it, they're able to move on with their lives almost instantaneously. 
Why? Because they don't have to repay. The penalty no longer hangs over them. But you, as the person who releases them, you have to consider, now how am I going to deal with this loss? Forgiveness is costly. It costs the person that forgives. It was the king now who had experienced that. When you forgive, it is a form of voluntary suffering. And so we go back to the text in Ephesians, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Whew. By the way, this isn't a uh, suggestion as we've been seeing in the book of Ephesians. Forgiveness is commanded of you and is commanded of me. It's not optional for us. It is now actually part of who we are, that we are a people who do not carry debts against other people. We are a people who, by definition, are a forgiving people. That's what the text actually is saying. It's what Jesus says elsewhere. This is who we are. And so it begs the question, how can that be possible for you and for me? When someone wrongs us, that we are able to release them from the debt. In fact, I... I I was going to save this to the end, but I, but I want to jump down there really quick. In Mark eleven twenty five, I don't have the scripture this morning, but in Mark eleven twenty five, Jesus actually said this. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus is saying. In other translations, depending on how you put it, while you're literally sitting there, standing there, and you're praying to God, and you remember a wrong that someone has committed against you, in that moment, it says, forgive. It doesn't say, go to the person and seek their forgiveness. It says, forgive. Now, there's more to this. There is the fact that when someone sins against us, we should go and we should be reconciled. But you know what he's saying here in Mark eleven twenty five? It's not just that we're commanded to forgive if somebody comes to us and asks us for forgiveness. It's that we are to carry in our hearts always a spirit of forgiveness. You are not to hold on to the wrongs that people have done to you to dwell on them because he says, let all bitterness, wrath, malice, anger, clamor be put what? Away from you if you're carrying bitterness towards somebody, then you don't have forgiveness. And so he says, you can't carry bitterness in your heart as a new creation in Jesus Christ. You can't carry malice, can't carry slander, can't... Church, how can we possibly be a people who live out what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 18 and what he's calling us to in Ephesians chapter 4. How is this possible? Well, look back at the story. In Matthew 18, do you remember what happens after the servant is forgiven by the king? What does he immediately do? He goes to another servant who owed him a paltry amount of money in comparison to what this servant had owed the king. And he demands repayment. He says, pay me back. 
And when the king hears about this, look at verse 32. He says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had what? Mercy on you. It's right here that we find the answer to how we, as followers of Jesus, can actually be a people who live and function in the world with kindness and tenderheartedness towards those who have wronged us and actually release people from the debt that they owe us. And the answer that Jesus gives, it's very simply this, because we are a people whose magnitude of our sins has been forgiven by God. Who is the king in this story? It's Jesus. Who are, who is the forgiven servant of a $3 trillion debt? It's us. Who is the servant that's not being forgiven? It's the people that we choose not to forgive. And Jesus says, do you not understand the magnitude of the debt that has been forgiven from God towards you? Without the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, we carry with us the crippling, the imprisoning weight of our sins. But the story of the gospel, the beauty of the work of Jesus Christ that we celebrate this time of year and every Sunday is the truth that those who carried a weight and a debt that they could never repay, that God the Father has poured out his wrath and his judgment upon his son, Jesus Christ, so that we don't have to pay that debt. Church, we forgive because we are forgiven people. Amen? This is our hope. This is our foundation. This is our truth that we're anchored in. How can I possibly be a person who doesn't carry bitterness into my heart against those people who have harmed me? Why is it I don't slander and I don't cut down that I respond in anger towards you? It's because while you might wrong me and while you might sin against me and you deserve to be paid back and I deserve to be paid back by those that I've sinned against, what Jesus says is, I didn't pay you back. And what you owe me is vastly greater than the sum of every relationship and every person who's ever wronged you. There is no one in your life or in the history of your life who has sinned and wronged you and holds a debt against you that I haven't held against you. And yet, what did Jesus do? Look at Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Oh, Jesus has released us from the debt that we owe him. Praise the Lord. But do you see how much it cost him to do it? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That is the depths of the forgiveness that we have received. He absorbed all of the debt upon himself when he hung on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
and then he died. That is what we deserved, all of that judgment. It's not that he just simply said, it's okay. It's that he came and he said, it's okay. Because I will deal with the loss. I will address the debt. And then he goes like a lamb before it cheers is silent. And he suffers and he dies for us. And he says, you're forgiven. And it's not just that you're forgiven. Your debt is paid. It's paid in full. See, why can we forgive? Because your debt is paid. And now you have all that you need. He's not just that he comes and he says, you're forgiven. He says, you're my son. You're my daughter. And I'm giving you all my righteousness, all my glory, all my goodness. It's why this, the hymn writer would say, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole. It's nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Have you ever sung that song? Do you know what you're singing when you sing that song? It is the most unconsciousable thing when we truly understand the magnitude and the weight of our sin against a perfect and holy God and the forgiveness that he has given to every single person who believes in his son. It's unconscionable if you really think about it, that when someone has wronged us, that we would feel right and we would feel justified to hold their sin against them. It's as crazy as a servant who has forgiven $3 trillion being unwilling to forgive another servant for a few days of work. That's why Jesus tells this story. Why are we told that all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and malice, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice? Why are we told, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you? That's the answer. We are kind, we are tenderhearted, because, church, your debt is paid. You have all you need, and it's all because of what Jesus has done. Do you know Jesus in this way? We sing the song, In Christ Alone, My Hope is Found. And there's this one line, and it says, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was, do you know what it says? Satisfied. You know, church, they did a study of people. And it was one of those psychological studies where they asked over 160 students, they said, I want you to write down a wrong that somebody has done towards you. Write it down. And then let us know if you have forgiven that person for that wrong. And let us know if you have not. And they gathered up all of the groups, the group that had been wronged and then had forgiven somebody and the group that had not forgiven someone. And then they said, standing where you are, jump as high as you can. What's this all about, Dave? Well, let me explain. The group that had forgiven people jumped two inches higher 
than the group that had not forgiven people. Do you know what's going on right there? We carry a weight upon us when we choose to hold in unforgiveness towards people. Jesus is so good that he says, if you have been forgiven by me, go and share that forgiveness with others because I freed you. And so you can put all of the bitterness, wrath, and clamor aside because on that cross, Jesus died. The wrath of God was satisfied. Church, live in, embrace the joy and the forgiveness of being forgiven people. But you know where you experience that joy the most? Is when you forgive others and trust in what Jesus has given. To him be the praise and the glory both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And so, Lord, help us. Help us because we are weak and we are frail. We can get so focused on the momentary and the now and not see the joy and the fullness and the new life that is ours as your forgiven people. And so, Lord, let us put aside all wrath and clamor and slander. Instead, Lord, let us walk in the forgiveness of Jesus, manifesting tenderheartedness, forgiveness, and kindness to others as you have shown us. And all God's people said, amen and amen.